Well, it's good to be with you guys today, whether you're sitting here in the sanctuary with us or whether you are camped out at home on your couch with your coffee and your dog. We're just glad that you're worshiping with us and tuning in. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith, and this is the final week of our sermon series called One Mind, where we have been talking about how to pursue unity in a culture that encourages divisiveness. Specifically, we've been unpacking a theme verse that the Apostle Peter wrote to the first century churches where he gives us some key attitudes that help us strive after unity. Check out what Peter wrote. This is the theme verse, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. He said, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. And so far, we have spent time unpacking this verse by talking about how unity, it can never happen unless we're intentionally trying to have sympathy towards our brothers and sisters in the faith. And then we talked about having the type of love described by the word Philadelphia helps bring unity. And last week, we spent a bunch of time talking about tenderheartedness or compassion and how that's actually different than sympathy. And today, we're finishing up by talking about how all of this requires a little tiny thing called humility. And Peter's instruction for us is that to be of one mind, to be a people who pursue unity, we need to keep a humble attitude. But you know what? In that little verse, 1 Peter 3, 8, he doesn't actually explain what it means to have a humble attitude. And so today we are going to turn to another passage in Philippians written by the Apostle Paul to learn what biblical humility really is. But before we do that, let's pray together. God, we're thankful for this chance to worship, whether we're at home worshiping or here. God, we just praise you for the fact that you have given us um, fellow Christians to come alongside in declaring your goodness. Lord, we want to lift up some of the needs in our body today. We think of Sue Heights as she's uh, waiting for some test results, and, and uh, we ask that you give her peace and comfort during this time, and also that you work with her doctor so that they can bring about a treatment plan that brings healing and recovery. Lord, we think of um, some of the tensions and families that we've been hearing about all week, that you are able to uh, breathe peace into people's lives, that you can help them uh, be wise in how they speak to those that they love so that they can pursue uh, kindness and unity and not division. Lord, help us be a church that sets an example through the way that we treat each other. Pray this in your name. Amen. So back when I was in high school, one of my friends was killed by a drunk driver. Uh, he was driving home from being out with some of his friends, and a guy who had had too much to drink swerved into his lane and crashed into a car full of teenagers, killing my friend and several other folks with him. Well, this guy, he went to prison, and he ended up serving about a year and then was released, which I thought was just an extreme injustice. I mean, one year for killing my friend did not seem like enough punishment. So naturally, that Christmas, while my family was gathered at my parents' house for a Christmas party, we sat around the table talking and stuffing ourselves, and the topic of this man's early release from prison came up. So remember, I was hurt over the fact that my friend was dead and this man had only served a year in prison. So I made the comment that I felt like Michigan's laws regarding drunk driving were too lenient. And I didn't think too much about the comment. 
Uh, and I actually assumed everyone sitting at the table would probably agree with me, but it turned out that my aunt was deeply offended by my comment. You see, she had friends and relatives that were struggling immensely with alcoholism and addiction, and she had seen firsthand how the penal codes in Michigan had made it all but impossible for people that she cared about to get their lives back on track, especially if they had a DUI or two under their belts. To her, my comments were at best insensitive, but more likely uninformed and straight up wrong. And I'm sure a lot of you guys know how it goes in families, uh, but what ensued was an argument of such epic proportions that to this day, it is the stuff of family legend. She told me that she thought I was wrong and needed to have a better understanding of addiction. I told her that she didn't know what it felt like to lose a friend to a drunk driver. And before we knew it, my whole family was involved. Some people yelling on my side, some yelling on her side, others trying to stay neutral, saying things like, well, you know how they deal with drunk drivers in Europe. And what ended up, thank you, I heard a couple of giggles. Someone else has that person in their family too. What ended up finishing the argument was that my aunt decided that she didn't want to take any more of it. So she stood up, walked out, and drove home by herself in the middle of dinner. Now the rest of dinner was quiet. In fact, I'm pretty sure that most of the rest of the dinner was um, silent. And my poor mom, who had worked so hard on creating this great Christmas family get-together, just had it totally ruined by me and my aunt's fight. And here's what had happened. I had just had a series of life experiences that made me feel the way that I did. My friend had died. I felt like the guy who killed him got off too easy. And add to that, my family of origin already had instilled in me a slight propensity to favor a view of justice that elevated punishment over lenience. And my aunt, she was coming in with her own life experiences and philosophies that she had been uh, raised with. So she had seen family deal with addiction and alcoholism. She'd seen how a law code that favors punishment usually leads to worse outcomes for people that she loved. And in my mind, I was right. And because of all that I'd experienced, nothing was going to change my mind. And in her mind, she was right. And because of all of her experiences, no one was going to change her mind. And the result, a massively divided Christmas dinner and some super weird family tension that took a long time to work itself out. Both of us felt like our opinions and life experiences were the only ones that mattered. And so we were willing to fight it out and elevate ourselves in opinions against the other. Now, the very same thing that happened at the dining room table that Christmas with my family was happening within the churches in a town called Philippi back in the middle of the first century. You see, the Apostle Paul, he had gone to this town called Philippi and had helped them start a church. And it ended up being an extremely diverse church. You had people who were raised within a Hebrew-style Jewish tradition. You had folks who were raised in a Greek-style Jewish tradition. You had people who grew up as like straight-up pagan Greeks. And you had people who grew up as sophisticated Roman elites. And they were all coming together from different backgrounds, different philosophical positions. They were all coming together in the church. And after a few years after this church started, Paul wrote to them a letter because the churches in Philippi were starting to face an incredibly hard time of suffering. 
It was around this point in history where persecution against Christians was ramping up and Philippi was right in the midst of it. So Paul, he wrote them a letter because they needed some special encouragement and instruction. Because do you know what happens when you take people with different theological and political and philosophical backgrounds and subject them to periods of hardship? Well, it's the same thing that happened between my aunt and me. Everyone thinks that their opinion and experiences are the ones that truly matter, and therefore we should act on my opinion and not yours, and it tends to lead to disagreement and sometimes division. People who have different life experiences, different life situations, and different philosophical and political upbringings, when they are forced to face any type of adversity together, be it persecution, pandemic, or political strife, the tendency is not to agree with each other and to come to the same conclusions. It's actually to disagree and divide. So the Apostle Paul, knowing that this is what's going on, he writes this little passage to the church in Philippi to help them as they deal with the challenges of being a diverse group of people facing potentially divisive hardship. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Well, here's what I hope we end up seeing today. I hope we end up seeing that unity, it's not an optional pursuit for Christians, and it requires humility. And humility, it happens when we intentionally set aside our desire to be first and work at valuing others above ourselves. So let's dig in. First, we see in our passage that unity, it's not an optional pursuit for Christians. And we see this starting in verse 1. Paul, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now, if we went out and we took a survey of Christians and we asked them, what is your favorite part of being a Christian? Here's the type of stuff we'd probably end up hearing. We'd hear people say, my favorite part of being a Christian is that Jesus loves me. Or my favorite part is that it's great that Jesus encourages me through good times and in bad times. Or maybe people would say, my favorite part is that God is a wonderful comforter who leads me through life. Or maybe even my favorite part is that God chose me to be a part of his ministry and he gave me the Holy Spirit to help. We'd hear a lot of stuff like that. But there's something that I'm guessing would be conspicuously absent from the answers of this survey. I don't think we'd hear very many people say, 
I just love that Jesus called me to try and be unified with a whole bunch of people that I don't like, agree with, care about, or even find that interesting. Need an example? Uh, when I was a youth pastor, anytime we'd plan an event, the question we would get most often from kids who were thinking about attending was, who is going to be there? To which we'd respond, does it matter? And they'd say, yes, of course it matters. Because if their friends were going to be there, they were in. But if it was only going to be that annoying kid or the sixth graders who smell like dirty socks and Doritos, then no way were they going to show up. We love the part of Christianity that's all about how God loves us and comforts us and wants to give us purpose. But we usually aren't so keen with the part that encourages us to try and and love and be united with people that we disagree with or think are annoying or draining or that we just don't get along with very well. And Paul, he, he gets this, and that's part of what makes this passage so genius. He basically takes the things that we love about our faith, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have comfort from his love, any common sharing or purpose in the Spirit, any tenderness or compassion, these are the things we love. He says, if you have any of those, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul knows that an essential part of the Christian life is that we are meant to pursue unity with other Christians. And not just the ones that we like or get along with, but all of them. Now let's ask why. Why is it so essential for us to pursue this kind of unity? Well, when people who have no business being engaged in each other's lives are deeply and compassionately pursuing unity with each other, that is probably the clearest illustration of the gospel that we can have. Because think about it. Based on the type of people we are, our choices, our actions, our experiences, and based on the fact that Jesus is God and perfect, there's not a lot of reason for him to be hanging out with and caring for and engaged with us. I mean, we are people who've lived against his ways, who have consistently offended him. Yet Jesus specifically steps across that divide and loves us and cares for us and unites himself to us. When we intentionally step across the divide with other Christians who act in ways that we deem offensive or hold views that we think are wrong, when we make that effort to care and love and partner with them, we model the extremely countercultural and grace-filled love that Jesus has towards us. And in so doing, we show the world something beautiful about God. Unity is necessary for Christians in the church because it shows the world the type of love that God has. Here's the basic point I'm trying to get at. Unity is not an optional pursuit for us. It's not something we always want to pursue but it's something that we need to. Something as Christians that is just as essential as is being encouraged by Christ or knowing that God loves us. Unity is not an optional pursuit for Christians. But what's it take to pursue unity? This is the question we've been asking through this whole series, and this is the very thing that Paul starts to unpack for us in our passage. In verse 3, he starts to unpack it by saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, 
value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I want us to notice something here. Paul, he is encouraging the church to pursue unity, and then the instruction he gives them on how to do that is by seeking to be humble. Unity requires humility. Unity does not happen unless we're trying to live with a humble attitude. And what's crazy about this is that this idea of unity needing humility, it comes up all over the Bible. Here we see Paul teaching that unity requires humility. Our main passage for the series, Peter teaches the same thing. Shoot, when Jesus washes his disciples' feet and tells them to do likewise, he's showing that humility is a necessary part of what will keep his new community of believers together. Unity requires humility. We will never get anywhere near unity unless humility is something that we're actively and intentionally pursuing. But what's it look like to pursue humility, to live with a humble attitude? Well, that's what the rest of our passage gets at. So let's really dig in and see what we learn. First, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, I don't know about you, but one of my bad habits in reading the Bible is that when I read phrases like selfish ambition or vain conceit, I automatically have a picture in my mind of like the most extreme cases. I hear selfish ambition and I'm thinking like, I don't know, Gordon Gecko or Frank Underwood or Bernie Madoff, some of these like really awfully selfishly ambitious people. And because I'm thinking of these extreme examples, it's easy for me to think, well, I'm obviously not like those people, so it looks like this is not an issue for me. The problem with this is that by jumping to those extremes, I'm just ignoring everything that Paul's trying to teach here. So here's a good rule of thumb. When guys like the Apostle Paul are writing, they tend to write about issues that plague the more ordinary swaths of humanity, not just the few super bad people out there. That means that if he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, there's a good chance that you and I and your normal neighbors, Joe and Nancy, all have a proclivity to do things out of selfish ambition. So what is selfish ambition? It's simple. It is just elevating ourselves and our ideas at the expense of others. I don't know if kids still do this, but when I was a kid, we'd like brag about our dads. Uh, we'd be like, well, my dad has a pickup truck. And then some other kid would be like, oh yeah, my dad has a pickup truck with an extended cab. And then I'd be like, well, my dad can chop down a tree with a chainsaw. And then some other kid would be like, oh yeah, my dad can chop down a tree with a chainsaw while drinking a beer in one hand and holding the chainsaw in the other. We were always trying to elevate ourselves above each other by showing how cool our dads were. Now, we might not fight about whose dad is the coolest now as adults, but we still try to constantly elevate ourselves against others. Does anyone have an uncle who every time he comes over has to argue politics with everyone? Is anyone that uncle? Why do we feel like we need to so strongly argue our political ideas against others? Well, it definitely is not because your dinnertime political argument is making a difference at the discussion table in Lansing. And it's probably not because you actually think you're going to change the other person's mind. It's usually because we have this innate need to show how smart we are, how right we are, how we can out-argue you when we need to. 
we're elevating ourselves at the expense of others. This is selfish ambition. It's that innate need to elevate ourselves for no other reason than we feel like we need to. And we don't just do this when we argue about whose dad is better with a chainsaw or when we argue politics with our parents. We do this with everything. In Bible study, when we feel the need to nitpick something that someone said, is it really because you want to make sure that we're teaching truth? Or is it because you want everyone else to know that you have a better grasp of truth than they do? Or when you make fun of how your wife drives, is it really just a flirtful jest? Or are you trying to make sure that she knows that you're a better driver than she is? Selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's when we feel like we need to elevate ourselves above others, not because it's necessary or the right thing to do, but because we feel like we need to prove ourselves, show ourselves to be something special. Look how right I am. Look how much I know. Look at how my opinions are so much better than yours. Paul says, stop. When you're sitting around with your fellow church people and you feel the need to say something that makes you seem smarter than they do, don't do it. I know you want to. I know it's natural, but don't. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't lead to unity. It's not humility. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But hey, we've got to ask a question here, because the answer uh, is not just to not ever say anything at all. So how do we know when our desires to say something in a conversation is selfish ambition or vain conceit? Well, let's consider three questions. First, ask why. Why do I feel like I need to say this? Secondly, ask whether saying this helps anyone other than myself. And third, ask if getting into an argument about this will help further the mission of Christ or not. Now to play this out, I want us to imagine a scenario in the early church. Imagine that you are a brand new Christian who is from the Roman elite and whose experiences with the Roman government have not been bad. After all, the Romans, with their roads and their soldiers, they've made it safer to travel. They've created more trade that's increased wealth for people. They've subdued violent outside threats that have kept people safe. So when you hear about a tax hike from Caesar, you may think, hey, that's just the cost of progress. Meanwhile, a Jewish member of your church views the Roman government as an oppressive regime that's been taxing the Jews for decades and providing no other benefits than keeping them from living the way that they want to. So, sitting at the table together, breaking bread, the Jewish Christian says, I cannot believe that the Romans are raising our taxes again. Now remember, you're that Roman elite Christian who thinks taxes are important. And imagine that you desperately want to help this Jewish simpleton understand that paying taxes is actually good for everyone. Should you, at this moment, interject and tell this person why they're actually wrong? Well, let's ask our questions. Why? Why do I feel like I need to say this? Is it because I think we're going to have a great conversation that brings us closer together and helps us to understand where the other person's coming from? Or do I feel like I need to say this because I have the right opinion and this person needs to understand what's really going on? Secondly, 
Ask if interjecting your opinion actually helps anyone other than yourself. If I argue against this person's idea, is it going to help them? Is it going to bring us closer? Is it going to help us be on better terms? Is it going to bring about a necessary change for this person's eternal security? Or is it going to drive us apart, create division over something that in the end is just a matter of opinion? And then third, ask, does getting into this argument help further the mission of Christ? If I bring up this issue, is it helping create a higher degree of love for God, of love for others? Is it creating justice or spreading the gospel? Or is it just me demanding that you hear my opinion? The idea here is that we need to be careful. We need to make sure that when we speak up, it's not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So the first part that Paul gives us, he says, be careful to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he gives us another action. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, this is huge because not trying to make more of yourself at the expense of others, this simply keeps you from being a jerk. It's trying to value others above yourselves that truly makes you humble. You know, for us, Being humble or humility, it's often associated with like the attitude of being willing to have your mind changed about something. People who are humble are often thought of as folks who are open to new ideas and open to having their mind changed. But the Greek word that we translate as humble in the Bible, it was most often used to describe a person of lowly status. So you might be from humble beginnings or have a humble profession. You might humble yourself before a ruler. All of these ideas are about occupying lowly positions in society. So when Paul writes, in humility, value others above yourselves, he's saying, hey, make yourself lower. Make less of yourself so that you can make more of others. Humility, it's the willingness to lower yourself or make less of yourself, even to disadvantage yourself so that others can be made more important. And if we don't know what this looks like, Paul, he gives us a description in the next couple verses. He says, in looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now, this is where studying your Bible with a good commentary and having, oh, our slides. Have you guys had the slides the whole time? Oh, I've been looking back here and I don't, I was really worried you weren't following me with my slides. Whew, that's good news. So if we had a commentary that dealt with some original language here, what we'd learn is that in our English translations, we've actually added the word interests into this verse to try and clarify a sentence that doesn't translate naturally into how we speak or read English. So in the original Greek, it basically says, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own, but rather to others. And so without that word interest there, it kind of leaves us wondering, your own what? Well, the verse is kind of written for us to insert whatever comes to mind in that space. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own preferences, not looking to your own opinions, not looking to your own wants, not looking to your own needs, but rather to others' opinions, preferences, wants, needs. In essence, 
Paul is telling us that humility is lowering my focus on my time, my money, my opinions, my wants, and elevating my focus on others and their good. So what's this look like in practicality? Well, it means when there's a disagreement in the church over preferences, the humble person lowers themselves by setting aside the need to have their own preferences or demands met, and they try to pursue the thing that is good for others. It means when there's someone in need in the church, the humble person lowers their focus on using their own resources for themselves and looks to see how they might be able to use their resources to help the other person. When it comes to how how we use our time, it means that the humble person lowers some of the focus on using their own time for whatever they want and looks at how they might use some of their time to elevate someone else. Humility is when we intentionally make less of ourselves so that we can pursue the good of others. Now let's try and put ourselves in the position of the original Greek readers of this passage. The Christian idea of humility, it sounded crazy to Greeks and Romans at the time. Because for Greeks and Romans, uh, they thought that anyone who was willing to give up power or influence was crazy. Power was good, and you should use whatever power and influence that you have to benefit yourself. I mean, why wouldn't you? You only live once. Shouldn't I pursue what I want with any means that I have? And the Jews, well, they were just tired of being the lowly people in the empire. Instead of ruling themselves, they were constantly subjected to the Romans. And instead of using their money how they wanted, they had to pay taxes to the very government that forced them to be its subjects. So whether you were Jewish or Roman or Greek, the idea of intentionally taking a lowly position so that you could pursue the good of others, it sounded crazy. I mean, the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews, they would have been like, Paul, are you nuts? Why on earth would we intentionally make less of ourselves? Why would we set our preferences aside? Why would we use our resources to advantage others above ourselves? Why would I do that? It makes no sense. And I think if we're honest, it kind of sounds crazy in our culture as well. I mean, how am I ever going to get what I want if I don't push for my own preferences? And how are all those people who are obviously wrong ever going to change if I don't assert my thoughts and opinions over them? If I am constantly making less of myself and choosing to not force my opinion out there, choosing to value others and their interests above my own, how are people ever going to change? I mean, what if they're wrong about questions of race? What if they're wrong about politics? What if they're wrong about theology? What if they're wrong about whether or not pineapple belongs on pizza? I mean, what am I supposed to do? Just keep my mouth shut and let people go on living the wrong way? Well, I think Paul was anticipating these objections when he wrote this. Check out what he writes next. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
If you're a Christian, part of what we believe is that when it comes to the things of God, we were in the wrong. We are selfish. We do things that God hates. We hold opinions that are offensive to him. We are the ones in need of change. But the way that Jesus helps us change, it's not by getting up and arguing with us until we either change our mind or give in. And he doesn't throw a divine temper tantrum when we don't give him the respect or reverence that he deserves. He could, I mean, he's God. He can do anything he wants. He can simply demand that you do what he wants. He could be like, hey, you dummy who keeps screwing up, do what I say or I'm going to smite you. But that's not how Jesus changes our minds and our hearts about him. He first humbled himself, giving up all the advantages of being in heaven with the Father and taking on all of the disadvantages of being a lowly, poor human. Not only that, but he disadvantaged himself to the point where he died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. He was first willing to make less of himself for our sake. And that's actually the thing that makes us open to hear him out and want to change for him. It's only because Jesus humbled himself that our hearts have been changed to want to live the way that he wants us to. So please see the connection. If the way Jesus changes our hearts is by humbling himself, by making less of himself, by disadvantaging himself for our sake, why would we think that the way for us to change other people's hearts and minds would be different? Why would I think that I can just argue with you or tell you where you're wrong? Why would digging in and insisting on my way, my opinion, my preferences, my stance, why would that change anyone's mind? It has to start with first making less of ourselves and pursuing the good of others. And then, and only then, can we start to have the types of conversations that actually change people's hearts. And here's the best part. Sometimes we're the ones who are wrong. And when we try to live with a humble attitude, sometimes we end up being the ones whose hearts are changed about an issue. But it has to start with humility. Church, we as followers of Jesus are called to this crazy thing called unity. We're meant to demonstrate the love of Jesus to the world by the way that we come together as a group who otherwise would have no business coming together. We're called to be people with different backgrounds, different political ideas, different life experiences who are working through the things that would divide anyone else so that together we can learn to love God and each other. But this type of unity, it requires humility. So let's try our hardest to not unnecessarily elevate ourselves and our opinions and our preferences at the expense of others. Let's try to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And let's intentionally try to make less of ourselves for the sake of those around us, placing a higher priority on what's good for them than we do on needing our own preferences met. So let's heed the words of Peter and of Paul and try to pursue unity by keeping a humble attitude. Let's pray. 
God, we're thankful for this series and how it challenges us to pursue uh, a type of unity that shows your love to the world. We ask that you give us wisdom in dealing with the complexities of pursuing unity, that as we try and be humble, you can give us strength and patience. Give us the wisdom to know when to say things and when not to say things, when it's right and good and when it doesn't help. Help us be a people whose humility changes the hearts of those around us so that they may want to be a part of the church and a part of following you. God, we pray this in your name. Amen.